Hello, and welcome to the History of Islam podcast, episode 7, A Son of Quraysh. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to another installment of the History of Islam podcast. We ended last week, well, two weeks ago, with Abdul Muttalib's discovery of the well of Zamzam. At that time, there had actually been other wells dug around Mecca. Qusay himself had actually managed to find a water source and dig a well that by the time of Abdul Muttalib's life was one of the most commonly used wells in Mecca. However, none of the wells available to the people of Mecca and to the tribe of Quraysh were actually within the sacred sanctuary of the Kaaba. The newly rediscovered well of Zamzam was. Through the possession of this well, Abdul Muttalib's wealth and prestige and standing in Mecca rose to new heights. The demand for Zamzam was enormous. Nobody cared about the other wells anymore, and not just because the well of Zamzam was closer and possibly more convenient to draw from, but if you were a pilgrim coming to Mecca in order to perform your sacred duties and to venerate the gods and offer sacrifices, you'd prefer to use and drink from the sacred water of the well um, that was within the borders of the sacred sanctuary and only a few meters away from the shadow of the Kaaba itself. You just you wouldn't come all that way just to use a regular well that was outside the sanctuary because to you that would be like any other well. You'd want the unique experience that wasn't available at home of drinking from a well that was in a sacred sanctuary. In this ancient Arabian society, one of the main signifiers of wealth was the number of children you had. The number of children you could afford to support, especially sons. Having many sons is a very, very valuable thing to have in those days. And it was a department that Abdul Muttalib lacked in. And if you remember when Abdul Muttalib was actually trying to dig for the well of Zemzem, initially people were trying to stop him. And he had only one son, his son Harith, to protect him. Now, this was not worthy of a man of his standing in those times because he was the head of quite a significant clan and if the well was being dug by another chieftain for example Abdul Muttalib's cousin Umayya who was head of the clan of Banu Abd shams the sons of Banu Abd shams who if you remember um, Abd shams was the son of Qusay by the way if you are ever confused as to the genealogies or you want to take a look at what the relations between people are where within Mecca then just head over to the blog where I have these genealogy tables uh, basically family trees on the episode guides so just take a look at those if you want to know more anyway Umayya was blessed with many sons and if it was him digging the well he would have had a large circle of powerful young men around him ready and prepared to prevent their father from any harm through the discovery of the well of Zemzem, Abdul Muttalib's fortunes had changed, and as the years passed, it was not only his financial wealth that grew, but also his wealth in children, and it wasn't long before he had 10 sons, and the oath that he made years ago was looming over him. Just a quick recap, if you don't remember what the oath was, well, when Abdul Muttalib was actually trying to look for the well of Zemzem and he was digging within the sacred sanctuary and the people were harassing him, trying to physically stop him, and he only had his one son, Al-Harith, to protect him, he swore an oath to the gods while standing in the shadow of the Kaaba that if they granted him ten sons that would protect him, then he would sacrifice one of them. When the day came that Abdul Muttalib had finally managed to bring himself up to the task that he had sworn to do, he called his sons and assembled them before him, 
so that he could perform a lottery to determine which of them would be the unfortunate one. The lottery was performed and he had fell upon one of the youngest of his sons. His name was Abdullah. Abdullah's mother, unlike the other wives of Abdul Muttalib, was actually from the tribe of Quraysh. So she had more influence than the other than the other wives of Abdul Muttalib, who were from other outlying weaker tribes. In fact, Abdullah's mother was from the clan of Makhzum, and the clan of Makhzum was one of the most powerful clans of the Quraysh. It was actually one of the more militaristically minded clans of the Quraysh. Uh, they were quite instrumental in the initial conquest of Mecca during the times of Qusay. Anyway, when Abdullah's mother found out that it was actually one of her sons that was to be sacrificed, she was absolutely outraged, as you can imagine. So she ran to her brothers and her kinsmen from the clan of Makhzum and demanded that they find a solution and take her son out of the predicament that he was in. And so... The Bani Makhzum rushed out towards the courtyard of the Kaaba where they found that there was already a murmuring crowd around the Peyu Abdul Muttalib, standing with a knife in one hand and his son by his side. Mughira, the chief of Bani Makhzum, flanked by his kinsmen, forced his way through the crowd and asked Abdul Muttalib what he was planning to do with the son of his sister. And before Abdul Muttalib could finish explaining his oath, he cut him short and told him that there was simply no way that they would let him slaughter the boy. al Mughira then suggested to Abdul Muttalib that if he really wanted to be true to the gods, then they should go to an oracle who will voice to them the true desires of the gods and who will give them a solution so that the oath will not be broken and the young Abdullah lives. Abdul Muttalib, obviously torn between his love for the gods and his love for his son, allowed al Mughira to persuade him and they headed to one of the most renowned oracles in the whole of Western Arabia. After Abdul Muttalib had explained the situation to the oracle, the oracle advised them to put it towards a lottery between the boy and 10 camels. If the lottery fell on the camels, then the camels should be sacrificed in place of the boy. And if the lottery fell on the boy, then they should add 10 camels and try again until the gods were satisfied. This solution worked for all parties and so Abdul Muttalib and co headed back to Mecca so he could carry out what the oracle had advised. We have come across lotteries quite often already. Previously, Hashim ended up getting the responsibilities out of the sons of Abd Manaf through a lottery. The treasure that Abdul Muttalib had uncovered when he dug up the well of Zemzem was distributed through a lottery. The determination of which son was to be sacrificed was done through a lottery. It is pretty safe to say that this was a recognized way of dealing with issues that were of doubt or issues that cannot, for one reason or another, be agreed upon by all the parties involved. So, before we move on, I just want to explain how these lotteries were actually carried out. And the lottery was basically casting lots, which was a pretty widespread practice in the ancient world and among polytheistic societies. Casting lots is actually even featured in the Bible, both the Old and New Testament. In Arabia, the casting of lots, the lottery, was performed through the use of these special divination arrows. And these arrows were considered to be sacred or holy. So for example, in the case of which son was to be sacrificed, what would have happened was a local shaman or oracle in Mecca would have told each son to make some kind of unique mark on the divination arrows. And then they would simply be cast by the shaman in order to determine the result. When Abdul Muttalib got back to Mecca, this was what they did. They set out two divination arrows to be cast, one for Abdullah and another for the ten camels. 
When they cast the arrows, the result came against the boys. So they did as the oracle had instructed them and added an extra 10 camels into the mix. So it was now 20 camels or the boy. They cast the arrows and again it fell against the boy. They added 10 more camels and again and again the arrows said the camels should live and it was the boy who should die. Again and again and again they tried until it was the 10th throw. A hundred camels versus the boy. When finally the cast lots came against the camels and the boy was saved. In place of the daunting task of slaughtering your son, Abdul Muttalib now had the expensive task of slaughtering 10 camels. After this harrowing chapter in Abdul Muttalib's life, he tasked himself with finding his son Abdullah, her wife, and eventually he found the perfect match. A girl named Amina, who's from the tribe of Quraysh and belonged to the clan of Bani Zuhra. And if you remember from our previous episodes on Qusay's life, Zuhra was actually Qusay's older brother, so Amina was a descendant of Zuhra. Amina had a sister, so Abdul Muttalib asked their father for both their hands in marriage. Amina would be married to Abdullah, and her sister would be married to Abdul Muttalib himself. The father accepted, and so Abdul Muttalib and his son shared a wedding day and a great wedding feast. The marriage proved to be a success. Abdullah and his bride Amina were a happy couple, and it wasn't long before they were expecting a child. However, in a cruel twist of fate, Abdullah wasn't long for this world, and while traveling, he was struck with an illness. When he was near the oasis of Yathrib, he told the group that he was traveling with to go on without him to Mecca. He planned to lodge in Yathrib with his grandmother and then make his way to Mecca when he had fully recovered. When the party reached Mecca and informed Abdul Muttalib of the situation, he sent his eldest son Harith to go and tend to his younger brother Abdullah in Yathrib and bring him back to Mecca when he had fully recovered so that he didn't have to travel alone. And so Al-Harith did as his father asked and made his way to Yathrib. When he finally arrived there, he was greeted by solemn sunken faces, and that was when he realized that the worst case scenario had happened. Abdullah would never set his eyes on his child, and he passed away, a young man, no more than 25 years old, leaving behind only five camels, some sheep, and an Abyssinian maid. Meanwhile, back in Mecca, Amina had given birth to a healthy boy. Abdul Muttalib rejoiced at the news and took it upon himself to help care for his orphaned grandchild. He circumcised the boy and organized sacrifices to the gods and a feast to celebrate. At this feast, Abdul Muttalib was asked what they planned to name the boy. Abdul Muttalib replied, Muhammad. The year of the birth is estimated to be in the tail end of the 6th century, so somewhere around 565 or 570 AD. Now, we have gone over the events in Mecca leading up to the birth of Muhammad, so let us take a quick look at the surroundings of Mecca and see what the rest of the world is up to. The way I'm going to do this is by taking a map of the world, zoomed in into Mecca, and then zooming out to expose more of its surrounding uh, each time. So for you to do this, head over to the blog right now and check out the episode guide for this episode where you'll find the maps that I will be using and referring to. If you can't access the blog for whatever reason, maybe you're on a train, then make sure to visit later on so you can see the maps with your own eyes. So by now Mecca, through trade and the pilgrimage, had firmly established itself as a regional power in the west of Arabia. About 100 kilometers, which is about 60 miles east of Mecca, was the rival city of Ta'if. Ta'if was another thriving city in the Hejaz, and unlike Mecca, Ta'if was an oasis 
famed for its fertility, home to extensive agricultural works. It was known particularly for its wine, the grape vineyards that, that they grew there. And it was actually known as the Garden of the Hejaz. Ta'if was also home to a religious shrine, so they rivaled Mecca on multiple fronts, not just the commercial front. As we zoom out from the mountains of Western Arabia and look towards the north, we find the imperial powers, the two superpowers of the old world, the East Roman Byzantine Empire and the Persian Sassanid Empire. The Byzantine Empire had reached the peak of its power with one of its greatest emperors of all time, if not the greatest emperor of all time, manning the helm, the brilliant Justinian. Justinian would wave goodbye to life at the end of 565 AD, and in his lifetime he had overcome pretty much all the obstacles that had come his way, such as plague and revolts, and he would lead the empire to its revitalization in all fields. Militarily, the Eastern Roman Empire had expanded its borders significantly, regaining vast amounts of land, for example, the eternal city of Rome itself, and with it the entirety of Italy. His conquests added to the empire important land in North Africa, including the famous city of Carthage and beyond it even. He regained land in the south of the Iberian Peninsula and important islands in the Mediterranean, such as wealthy Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica. Culturally, he enriched the empire as well, for example, through his grand building projects throughout the whole of the empire, but the highlight has to be the stunning church of the divine wisdom, more commonly known as the Hagia Sophia, which not only stands today, but is one of the most recognizable structures in the world with its famous dome. And even in the impressive skyline of modern-day Istanbul, the Hagia Sophia still stands its own after over a thousand years. In the field of administration, there is one shining highlight, and Justinian, after deciding that the empire's legal system was in dire need of repair, he initiated probably the greatest achievement during his rule, and it was something that had never, never ever been done before throughout the entirety of Roman history, never mind Byzantine history, and it was the complete revision and reformation of all Roman law. The results of those efforts became known as the Code of Justinian. Economically, Justinian had commissioned two monks with the tall task of smuggling silkworms into the Byzantine Empire. The trade of silk was incredibly lucrative in ancient times, and it led to the rise of an extensive transcontinental trade network spanning from the shores of the Pacific to the Middle East and Europe, the famous Silk Road. For the silk to get to the Byzantines, it had to first go through the territory of the sometimes hostile Sassanids, and as you as you can imagine, they didn't hesitate to close the tap and suspend trade if the relationship between the two great empires soured or if war broke out. Now, Justinian tried to look for alternative trade routes that didn't pass through the Sassanist territory or their sphere of influence, but his efforts ended in failure, and so he desperately tried to uncover the secrets of producing this fabric of the gods, a feat that many before him had tried Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.
failed to accomplish. Amazingly, Justinian's two monks succeeded in their mission. The impact of this small, seemingly insignificant two-man expedition was absolutely massive. It was huge, and it wasn't long before silk factories began to pop up in all the major cities of the empire. Silk was already a very important commodity for the Byzantine Empire. Justinian had already granted a monopoly to imperial factories in 541, but after the acquisition of silkworms in the early 550s, the Byzantine silk weaving industry flourished, and the production and trade of Byzantine silk became an immovable foundation and cornerstone of the Byzantine economy, allowing for them to have a monopoly over the trade of silks in Europe and to dominate in the production of silk in Europe for the next 650 years. Over to the east, separated from the Byzantine Empire by the Syrian desert, the Persian Sassanid Empire was also witnessing a golden age of its own and arguably its peak under one of the greatest and most celebrated leaders it had ever had, Khosrow I. Khosrow initiated numerous reforms that led to an increased centralization of power within the Sassanid Empire. His reforms resulted in the rise of a better organized, more efficient bureaucratic state which strengthened the central government and added to his personal power at the expense of the old feudal-like system and the great noble families that benefited from that system. And the way it basically worked is the same way you'd imagine an old feudal kingdom would work. The society empire was split up into petty kingdoms and provinces. The king of kings, i.e. the emperor, that's what the word Shashan Shah means. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But that is what the Persians would call their leaders. Shashan Shah, which meant king of kings. So the empire is separated into provinces and petty kingdoms. The emperor would have control of the provinces, while the petty kingdoms would all be headed by a, well, king. And these kings would come from, from these noble families that have had this land for a long time. And before Khosrow's reign, the empire's military would rely on these noble families, answering the call of the Sasanian emperor and providing their soldiers and cavalry ready and equipped, uh, paid for by those, by those petty kings from the revenues of their land to serve the emperor. And in return, these feudal lords would be given privileges such as tax exemptions, for example. Well, when Khosrow ascended to the throne, he overturned all of this and he introduced a new social class to back him up and he promoted them to the rank of nobles. This class would form the backbone of his new centralized state. They will be his soldiers, they will be his administrators. And Khosrow would pay for all this again at the expense of the great noble families. And uh, this new source of revenue, this new stream of revenue was basically the tax revenues which had previously uh, in the past been paid to the local noble families of a region. Now, those taxes would go straight into the central government's treasury, completely bypassing those nobles. And this was further bolstered by an empire-wide land survey, which would allow Khosrow to know the true value of the land that he was taxing, uh, to find out the possessions of the people so that he could tax them more efficiently and uh, increase the taxes entering the central government's treasury. This new source of revenue for the central government led to an expansion in the empire's military capability and it paid for a series of major military reforms. Unlike the Romans, for example, whose most important force was, without doubt, the infantry, the legions, 
the most important force for the Sassanids was their cavalry. However, cavalry units were very expensive to maintain. And also, a cavalryman is quite a prestigious position. And so, in the Sassanid Empire and within Sassanid society, serving in the cavalry was reserved solely for nobles. So, if you were not a noble, you could not serve. Well, Khosrow had found a solution for this already. With his elevation of a new social class to the rank of nobles, he now had a greater pool of candidates, a greater pool of people which he could recruit from and which he could bolster his cavalry from. Also, when you take into account that the cavalry is usually by far the best trained and best equipped unit in the army, this move along with a few other military reforms that serve to improve the organisation, the efficiency and the training of troops led to a step towards a more professional, a more lethal and a more effective Sassanid army. Just like the USA and the Soviet Union, the great superpowers of the 20th century had their spheres of influence and their proxy wars, well, so did the two great superpowers of the 6th century. On the southern frontier between the two rivals, both the Sassanids and the Byzantines had Arab vassals within their sphere of influence on either side of the Syrian desert. In the west, the Byzantines had the Ghassanids, and in the east, the Sassanids had the Lachmids. What these two vassals offered their overlords was, number one, a buffer zone that protected the empires from nomadic raids that would come from the Syrian desert or deep from Arabia itself. Number two, they both provided troops. The Arabs were fantastic horsemen and they featured greatly in the wars between the Byzantines and the Sassanids. Number three, they also provided an opportunity for proxy wars, and just as the Byzantines and the Sassanids were arch rivals, their vassals, the Ghassanids and the Lachmids, soon grew to become bitter rivals as well. And in some cases, even when the Byzantines and the Sassanids were at peace, the Ghassanids, who were allied to the Byzantines and backed by them, continued to raid the Sassanids and fight the Lachmids. And on the other side, the Lachmids, who were allied to the Sassanids and backed by them, continued to raid the Byzantines and fight the Ghassanids. An example of this in action is after witnessing Justinian's success in Italy and the grave lack of Roman troops on the eastern border, Khosrow himself, unable to act directly because he was bound by a peace treaty, ordered his Lachmid vassals to launch assaults on the Roman territory. Arabia, due to its nature as being right smack in between the two great superpowers, became an object of their rivalry and it had become quite prone to foreign meddling and foreign intervention. The only thing that ultimately saved it throughout the course of the ages was its inhospitable conditions. In the east of Arabia, however, the Sassanids had managed to quickly establish their sovereignty there, pretty much as soon as they overthrew the Parthians, so sometime in the 3rd century. And what this means is that by the time of the birth of Muhammad, there had been a Sassanid presence in East Arabia for more than three centuries. One writer describes that before the arrival of Islam, the Sassanids were on the shores and the strands of the sea, whereas the Arab tribes were more internal in the mountains and the deserts. Well, it is clear from this that the primary aim of the Sassanid presence in East Arabia was evidently to control traffic and trade in the Persian Gulf, which would have been very important to them and very lucrative. By the time of the point that we are at now, 
the Sassanids, as part of Khosrow I's centralization effort, began to tighten their hold and began to tighten their grip on their possessions in East Arabia. And during his reign, we begin to hear of a reduction of freedoms and a reduction of the autonomy that had been afforded to the East Arabians previously. And governors are being dispatched from the Persian capital, centrally appointed by the imperial authority. On the other side of Arabia, we find Christian Abyssinia, which was within the Byzantine Empire's sphere of influence. During the reign of Justinian, relationships were improved because Justinian was searching for a way to bypass the middleman Persians in the trade between the Byzantine Empire and the East. In the early 6th century, the Abyssinians had initiated an invasion of southern Arabia with the pretext of aiding persecuted Christians. The invasion was successful and the Abyssinians had carved out for themselves a nice dominion in the southwest of Arabia. The Abyssinians came initially as conquerors but had quickly fell in love with the land and decided that they were there to stay, setting up colonies and an administrative infrastructure. This was the situation of Arabia around the time or a few years before the birth of Muhammad. The city of Mecca is rising up to prominence and the two superpowers to the north are going through their peaks under the leadership of probably the greatest emperors they had both ever had. The eastern shore of Arabia was under control of the Persians and the Abyssinians had carved out for themselves land in the southwest of Arabia that they were colonizing. Unfortunately, that is all for now. There will be some footnotes in this episode, so if you want to carry on listening to those, then do feel free. Otherwise, I'll see you next week, where we'll be beginning with the first few chapters of the son of Horatia's life. Goodbye. listening to the footnotes segment. We have a few things on our list today to mention. The first thing is the character page that I asked you guys uh, if I should implement it or not. Well, there has been overwhelming support for it. I was quite surprised. And uh, yeah, it's going to be carried out. Again, it will be found on the categories slash index page uh, on the blog, which is quite visible at the top of the blog at the top of the website and when you click on category slash index you'll find a list of all the useful uh, pages on the blog and uh, I'll put it there where you can click on it and take a look at it and by the way if you ever go on there and you find that there is a character that you want on there that is missing then just send me a message on the contact page and I will put the person up I'm trying to only put um, basically not main characters but people that reoccur in our podcast for at least two or three episodes so i don't want to put anyone that i've only mentioned their name once because they don't matter to our story and to our podcast as much okay the second point was that a few listeners now have actually uh, pointed me towards a service named patreon i'm sure most of you know about it if you don't patreon is basically a platform for an audience to support a content creator. So it could be someone on a podcast, someone on YouTube, whatever. And 
I basically would like to know if you agree with these people that appointed me towards Patreon. Do you think I should open a page and would you be willing to support it? So I would like you guys to please go over to the contact page on the website and just send me a message telling me whether you would or you would not uh, support me on Patreon because I don't think it's worth to open up a uh, a page if I've only got about five or ten people uh, willing to help. Um, I'll rather wait till there is a larger amount of people and the support will be well appreciated. Um, it is needed. I'm reaching a point where thankfully we've got quite a few listeners now and the hosting of the files is becoming quite an issue. Um, I might run into problems with servers and people not being able to access episodes, which is something I want to avoid. Okay, so yeah, go on the contact page and send me a message to tell me whether you'd be willing to support me on Patreon or not. The third is a shout out to Unbutton History. And Unbutton History is the podcast of um, uh, history lessons with Caleb, Mike and Terry. Um, it's a really good podcast and a very gr- a very good idea. Um, I might do it myself in the future. Um, me out, so I'm returning the favor. And it's a very good show. They grab a history topic and they discuss it quite casually, which is something that I quite like. It's a very nice, easy listen. And you find out more about it on rockslabs.net. That's R-O-X-L-A-B-S.net. The final point is email subscription. And I would like to point you all towards email subscriptions because the last episode, which was delayed because I had a very, very bad sore throat. I want to apologize for that as well. Um, I actually try, I tried to record, but my voice was literally cutting out. It was that bad. So what happened was a lot of people missed the announcement that the episode was going to be delayed because it was only on the blog and it wasn't an audio file. So it might not show up in people's podcatchers, which let them see the feed. So to avoid this, I would like you all to please go over to the blog and subscribe to the podcast and to the blog by email. To do this, there is a box on the sidebar where you can enter your email and subscribe or go onto the feed page and subscribe there. It's quite it's quite clear how to do so. If you have any difficulties, then just contact me. I'll be very happy to help you out. Uh, also, make sure to check your inbox for a verification email in order to confirm your subscription because um, I have a list of people that have subscribed and there are a few that haven't confirmed and haven't verified. So that might cause issues with the the uh, the email hosting service that would send the emails out to tell you when there is an update. And uh, I'll probably do something in the future where email subscribers will gain access to bonus material and things like that. Just a little incentive so that more people subscribe via email. Uh, that is all for now. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any suggestions or any thoughts, send me a message on the contact page on the blog. I'll be very happy to discuss it with you. Thanks for listening again. See you next Thursday. Thank you. 
developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.